Good morning. We're glad you're with us today. And it looks like you better bring somebody with you next Sunday. Because Clarks aren't here. Well, we do have some Clarks here, but when they're not here, then I'm kind of lonely up here. And you may need to see some things on the board. We begin a new series this morning, Preparation for Ministry, and we're looking at lessons from the life of Joshua. I do want to welcome a friend, Chris Shupak from Austin, Texas. He's right back there in the back. Good to have you with us, Chris. Now, I trust that everyone has a study guide. If you don't have a pen, now is the time to get one because you're going to need it. And everyone will need a Bible. So here would be a Bible right here. Some of you young runners, just come and get one if anybody needs one. Hey, Bob, we got, we got the pen. <laughs> very good. Very good. That'll make me feel much better. <laughs> now, we're going to take a look at Joshua as God is preparing him for his ministry of spiritual leadership. Perhaps you may not be moving toward the ministry of spiritual leadership, except maybe in the home, but you may minister on Sunday morning by fixing breakfast, even as Zach and Kristen do. Uh, You may minister to people on the job. Ministry is anything that we do to promote the kingdom of God. Now we know what the kingdom of God is. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto us. And when we minister to others, either in the body or outside the body, we promote the kingdom of God. That's what we're doing. It might be a good encouraging word. It might be sharing the gospel. And any of that kind of ministry is going to have a strong flavor of the fruit of the Spirit. If you want to get a broad picture of ministry, it would be love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. But then there's going to be that joyful spirit. There's going to be sharing the gospel of peace. Everything is going to have to be done in a very patient and kind way. Even kind to those people who may irritate you on the job or some customer or whatever it might be. Calm and gentle with difficult situations and difficult people. Remaining faithful to God in your marriage, in your home and family, in your church, and you're, whatever you're doing, remaining faithful to the Lord. That doesn't mean that you wouldn't change work from time to time or maybe change your church even. Never allow yourself to get out of control. Now the first mention of Joshua in the Bible is in Exodus chapter 17. And we're going to take a look at these uh, quickly as we go through and see what we can learn uh, from the Old Testament as God gives us a lot of good ideas here. I dare say there wouldn't be a lot of new ideas this morning, but some things that we really want to emphasize. And I've got some answers on the board, and we'll be just uh, marking these as we go along so that you can uh, keep up with them. Okay, let's look in uh, Exodus chapter 17, and right in the very first verse, we have come to Rephidim. And there is a distinct problem at Rephidim. The people have no water to drink. So what do they do about it? Have a prayer meeting? No. Verse 2. Therefore the people did chide with Moses. Do you know what that is? Quarreling. They chided with Moses. Give us water to drink. Moses said, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Verse 3. The people thirsted for water and they 
murmured. What's, do we have any murmurs in here? Grumbling. They grumbled. <laughs> they grumbled against Moses. Listen carefully, all the approach kids. <clears throat> they grumbled against Moses. Why have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So God tells Moses, bang on the rock with the rod of God. Water comes forth and everything is taken care of. Except verse 9. Oh, excuse me. Look in verse 8. Then something happened. Now that's going to be important. Why did it happen right at that moment? Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, first mention of Joshua, choose men for us, go out and fight Amalek. Tomorrow I'll station myself on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Now there's nothing magic going on here, but God likes to draw pictures for us. And here's Moses up on the mountain with the rod of God. And when he holds up the rod, Israel prevails. I think that's a picture of intercessory prayer. And Moses gets weary and he's got to have some others to help him. And Aaron and Hur come up to lift up his arms and Israel prevails and wins the day. Now what could we learn from that? Somebody has to be praying up on the mountain. Others have to be fighting down in the valley. But we've got to have both. God normally doesn't just do it out of heaven. Normally He uses means. And the means would be those who would be willing to be in the trenches and who would be willing to fight the battle. So, verse 14 The Lord said to Moses, write this in the book. Now, your translation may say a book, but really it's the definite article. And it should be, write this in the book. My NAS here has it in the margin, the book. Because there is a book. It was the Pentateuch. And it was what Moses was compiling here as a record of what God was doing. And recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and named it one of the eight personal names of the Lord, Jehovah Nisi. Anybody know what that means? The Lord is my banner. And it is a banner of victory. And he said, the Lord has sworn the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. So, let's take a look now and see what are some things we could learn here. Why do we have so much about war and battles in the Bible? You remember right here in First Light, Legan Duncan told us one Sunday morning that all that business about battles and war is so Christians can have a good perspective of history and geography, the Holy Land, and what's going on there. But I would suggest to you that there's another good reason. And that is, we are in a spiritual war. Whether anybody recognizes that or not, we have an enemy, we have weapons to fight with, we have a cause to fight for, and we have a captain of our souls, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're in a battle. And we can learn strategic lessons from these Old Testament physical battles back when God was working through the nation. Now He's working through the church. We're not as the church called on to go out and fight the Chinese, but we're fighting ideas and speculations and strongholds and everything that gets stuck up here that is against the knowledge of God. And we're taking captive every thought 
to the obedience of Christ. Our battlefield is the mind and what we think and what were the thoughts we put in to the mind. So Psalm 144.1, Blessed be the Lord my strength, who teaches my hands to war and my fingers to fight. And then in Judges 3, he said, we got a generation here who don't know how to fight. And we got to teach them how to fight. Now this is not the jihad. God was destroying those godless nations in the land of Canaan because the cup of their iniquity was full. So let's get some uh, answers here. The first one is in the area of timing. Timing. Satan's attacks are more effective when there is quarreling and grumbling. Satan's attacks. Here is one one right here. Satan's attacks are more effective. I think Satan likes to attack at strategic moments. In your family, if there is quarreling, if there's grumbling, if there's chiding, if there is a spirit of discontent, that's a time that Satan really likes to attack. So you can be looking for it. He's looking for times like that. God desires that His people be equipped and ready to fight the good fight. Equipped and ready to fight the good fight. Number two under one right here. And we see that in the New Testament book of Ephesians chapter 6. God has given us all the weapons of our warfare. The helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, belt of truth, feet shod with preparation of the gospel of peace, shield of faith, sword of the Spirit, gird about with all prayer. He wants us to be ready in every way for the conflict. Equipped and ready to fight the good fight. As Paul said, I fought the good fight. I've run the course. I've finished the, finished the race. Number three. Amalek will be completely destroyed. God will not tolerate rebellion against Himself. Rebellion against Himself. Now, it may go on for a period of time because we see Amalek still around in Saul's day. And you remember uh, Saul was supposed to kill all the Amalekites, the sheep, the goats, and cattle and everything, but he let Agag live. And uh, maybe he wanted him as a trophy of the victory that he had won. But you remember Samuel took his sword and killed Agag because God says completely eradicate all the enemies. He says that on occasion. Now for us, we can't eradicate the devil. He's going to always be there. And that old nature keeps trying to rise up and take control. So I wouldn't say that we could completely eradicate the old nature, but guess what we can eradicate? We can eradicate strongholds. We can eradicate habits and thought patterns and negative thinking and all kinds of things that have to do with what our hearts and minds dwell upon. In fact, I would encourage you just to get a list of good things that are going on in life. A lot of good things in America. A lot of good things in Texas. Hey, you ought to go live in Michigan for a while. No, I better not say that. Go live somewhere else and then come back to Texas. You will be delighted to get home. But get your list and go down the good things and don't dwell on the bad things. We all have difficult challenges. Hey, what are those challenges for? They have a purpose. God uses every circumstance, every person 
and everything in our lives to prepare us for ministry, to prepare us for work in His kingdom. What kind of situation are you going through right now? How does God want to use that in your life to prepare you for ministry? Now, you might be thinking, oh, this is such a mundane thing. How could God use what I'm doing now, getting up every day, going to work? God uses everything. He doesn't waste any circumstances, any experiences that come to our lives. And that's where we need to be watching those things and say, Lord, I want to be clay in a potter's hands. This is a difficult situation, but I want you to show me what you have in mind with this situation. And a lot of times you look around and you see people who are in a lot worse situation than we would be. Maybe God wants us to minister to them. Okay, we're equipped to fight the good fight. God will not tolerate rebellion, eradicate the enemy. Power does not come from weapons and warriors. Power comes only from God. Here it is right here. Power does not come just from weapons and warriors. Now, as we said, excuse me, that would be number five. Sometimes we have to have weapons and warriors, certainly. That doesn't mean that we don't have an army, navy, marines, and we just say, oh, God will protect us. But we can't put our faith and trust in those things exclusively. We have to trust the Lord is going to work through those things. And sometimes He would even work without using any of those means. Number two. Now, everybody everybody up to speed? Are we moving along a good pace? Number four. Oh, I'm sorry. Completely eradicate the enemy. Life will be better. Where are we completely? Oh, right here. There we go. Yeah, I may get to moving too fast. So, And that would be the enemy of wrong thoughts, strongholds that come to our hearts and our minds where Satan just inundates us with wrong thinking. Now, let's uh, kick over to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24, Mount Sinai. Look with me in verse 9 of Exodus 24. Then Moses went with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. Now, they, they didn't see Him face to face, but they saw God at a distance there. And under His feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Yet He did not stretch out His hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel, that is, just to wipe them out by His glory, and they beheld God, and they ate and drank. Isn't that interesting? They beheld God, and they ate and drank. And the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain, remain there. I'll give you the stones with tablets, with the law and the commandments. So Moses arose with Joshua, his servant. And Moses went up to the mountain of God. In verse 16, the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. Now here is something very interesting. Let's say uh, under number two there, first blank, fellowship plays an important role in ministry. Here we go right here. Fellowship plays an important role in ministry. In the ancient Middle East, eating a meal with someone 
was both a symbol and precursor to fellowship. And a lot of times it would depend on what you ate. Scottish explorer John McGregor in the late 1800s was exploring adventure from Scotland, was exploring the Jordan River Valley, and he was captured by the Arabs. So as he sat down in the tent there, uh, parlaying with an old sheik, he reached inside his jacket and pulled out a little box, kind of like a snuff box. And he opened it up, and there was something, pure white crystals, and he offered to the old sheik, who took a pinch, thinking it was sugar, and put it to his tongue. And immediately John McGregor took a pinch and put it in his mouth and laughed and said, Now we have taken salt together in your tent. The old sheik had never seen salt so refined as that. And all of a sudden, because they ate salt together, there was a covenant there. And the Arabs ceremoniously got him in his canoe and carried him back down to the river. Shalom, my friend. Because they had eaten salt together. Well, eating, did you ever think of this, is a very common and ordinary thing. But it's amazing. What you eat becomes you, your body. God made us, and God loves the whole person. My body is important to God. One day I will have a new resurrection body. So the whole man was made by God and is accepted by God. And here we see in chapter 24, God spreads out a fellowship meal on Mount Sinai for these elders. Wouldn't that have been something to dine with God Almighty? I wonder what was on the menu. And so they had fellowship together with God. A couple of them didn't get too much out of that fellowship because Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, unfortunately later offered strange fire and God brought them down because they had offered fire that was not taken from the perpetual fire on the altar as God had said. What is it about eating a meal together? God has ordained the Passover meal. He has ordained the Lord's Supper. He has ordained the marriage supper of the Lamb that we'll partake in one day when he returns, and it's important. You remember in the New Testament, in Acts 2, the New Testament believers went about from house to house, breaking bread and having joyous fellowship together. It's just a part of the Christian life. Now let's uh, go to number two, and let's say God is real, and he is never far away. Did we mark fellowship here? Yes, we did. Yep. God is real and He is never far away. There is fellowship and here is... Now to be able to see God like they did, uh, we would think would be enough for them to have strong faith and be convinced. But the very next day, the very next week, they again get in the problem of unbelief. You remember what Francis was saying last Sunday, all spiritual discouragement and depression really relates to unbelief. I don't believe God that knows where knows where I am and what I'm going through. I don't believe God can do anything about it. I don't believe God wants to do anything about it. It gets back down to unbelief, but God is real and he is never far away. It's Jehovah Shammah, another of the personal names of God from Ezekiel 48:35. The God is there. And He's here. And He dwells within us 
in the person of His Holy Spirit. Hey, a couple of good verses for you. Deuteronomy 31, 6. Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid or tremble at them, the enemy. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Isaiah 41.10 Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now, I tell you what I have to do. I have to have those verses handy. So I've got them written down. And all time during the day, in the middle of the night, whenever... I can go back to those verses and be reminded God is real and He's never far away. And if He doesn't answer my prayer for relief or whatever it might be, it means He has a purpose. He's training me. He's getting me ready for whatever ministry there may be coming down the road. Hey, quickly, Exodus 32. Exodus 32. Here's a tough one. 17. Moses got the Ten Commandments now. And when Joshua, third mention here of Joshua, heard the sound of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a sound of war in the camp. But Moses said, that's not the sound of the cry of triumph. And it's not the sound of the cry of defeat. It's the sound of singing that I hear. It came about as soon as Moses came to the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger burned, and he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. He was really, really upset. Now notice, singing and dancing may be a very enjoyable pastime. But when it turns sensuous, then we have problems. And that's what's going on here. Well, what about excuses for sin? Have you ever heard any good excuses for sin? Check this one out. Moses said to Aaron, verse 21, why did, why did the people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? Aaron said, don't get too bent out of shape on this. You know the people. You know they're prone to evil. They said to me, make us a God to go before us. This Moses brought us up from the land of Egypt. We don't know what's become of him. So I said to them, whoever has gold, let them take it off and give it to me. And I threw it into the fire and boop, out came this calf. And that's his explanation of how they got into the sin here. And then verse 25, Moses saw that the people were out of control. And it's some bad news here in the camp of the Israelites. Now let's fill in uh, verse uh, number 3 and number 1. There are things, a number of things, that are worse than war. A number of things that are worse than war. Now in the book of James, it says, Each one sins when by his own evil desire, his own lust, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it's full grown gives birth to death. If you're fighting on the battlefield, we're talking about physical death. But James is talking about spiritual, eternal death under the abiding wrath of God. And that is a much more serious matter than just being killed on the battlefield if you're a Christian. So there are a lot of things worse 
than war. War is a terrible thing, but there are many things worse than war. Now, if you're in spiritual conflict right now, and that spiritual conflict has not come as a result of some sin that you got into or some negligence spiritually and Satan came and attacked and had some success. If it's not due to that, then you could rejoice because God has that spiritual conflict for you in this context at this time because He wants you to be trained for war spiritual war and they're going to be weaker brothers and sisters that you meet through life and if you're one who is trained then you'll be able to help them in the battles that they're fighting and encourage them and help them learn how to use their weapons and help them trust in God to win the war number two sin is a terrible affliction especially among the people of God Sin is a terrible affliction. Here it is right here. There are big sins. There are little sins. The Scripture says sin is sin. Romans 1 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which was known about God is revealed from heaven uh, excuse me, that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal powers, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, how about that? A lot of times we say, what about the heathen who didn't know God? Well, these people knew God. They didn't honor Him as God or give thanks they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. You can look at the creation and understand some things about God. You can look at God's law written in the heart of every person and know some things about God. But if you resist that knowledge, then that cuts off further knowledge. I believe that if you respond to the knowledge you have, God will send more knowledge. And I, I've told you about Don Richardson uh, speaking before talking about in his book, Eternity in Their Hearts, missionaries down in the Amazon River uh, jungle rounding the corner in a very remote place and there would be the entire tribe out there waiting for somebody to come and bring this message that they were looking for, the message about the true God. So number three, public and willful sin must be Confronted by leadership. This is Moses confronting their sin. There is no excuse for immorality. Public and willful sin must be confronted by leadership. It's uh, an ugly business, but it has to be done. Or our sin just goes on and nobody understands anything about it. Moses took the golden calf and ground it up into powder and threw the powder into water and made the people drink the water. I'm not sure exactly what all that meant, but uh, uh, it probably had a bitter taste. Okay, let's go to uh, number four in Joshua's preparation, fourth situation, and it is in Exodus 33. Next page. Exodus 33, and they're in the tabernacle. It came about 
This is verse 9. Whenever Moses entered the tent, that's the tabernacle, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak to Moses. How about that? He goes to the tabernacle and God talks to him. Now we could say, oh, I wish it were like that today. And I could say, Lord, what do you want me to do about this situation? Well, we've got the Scripture. And we've got the Holy Spirit. And we've got the lives of many Christian men and women who've lived. And we've got a lot of things to help us, especially the Holy Spirit. So we just have to take it the way God has given. Verse 10, When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, the people would arise and worship, each at the entrance of his own tent. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, the young man, would not depart from the tent. I wonder how young he was at that time. 21, 25, 28. Well, he's learning some things. Because I think, I don't know if he heard the audible voice or not. Perhaps he did. But he knew when Moses came out of that tabernacle that Moses had been enlightened in fact, when Moses was on the mountain with the Lord, you remember he came down, his face was shining, people couldn't even look at him, had to put on the veil. So Joshua knew something was going on, and naturally Moses was sharing with him whatever God was speaking to him. Now look at this, verse 13. Moses said, I pray thee, if I found favor in thy sight, let me know thy ways, that I may know thee, so that I may find favor in thy sight. Consider too, that this nation is thy people. And God said, verse 14, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. There it is again, Jehovah Shammah. The God is there. His presence is going to be with Him. God's presence is with us. We don't have to fear. By the way, look in verse 20, and there's the answer to our question. Well, it says they saw God, but it says you can't see God. Verse 20, you cannot see my face. For no man can see me and live face to face like I would be looking at Zach here. Because God's glory would just overwhelm any person. So he said, Behold, there's a place by me, and you'll stand there on the rock. Verse 21 and 22 came about while my glory is passing by. It will come about while my glory is passing by. I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I pass by. And then I will take my hand away and you will see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Okay, let's go to number four now. Every man who would live a godly life in Christ Jesus needs a godly mentor to guide the way. A godly mentor to point the way. What number is that? Number four. Godly mentor. Now, some people are in places where they can't find a godly mentor. Well, it would be good to pray for a godly mentor. If you're a young lady, I would pray for that older woman that Titus 2 talks about that trains the younger women to love their husbands and to love their children. Now, I used to teach a class of high school girls. I mean, 50 girls in one class. And they would say, oh, Mr. Welch, nobody has to teach me to love my husband when I get there. But yet, uh, you do need to learn some things, and you can learn them well from wise 
older women. So you uh, husbands, if your wife doesn't have that wise older woman in her life, pray for one and pray for a godly mentor. God likes to answer those kinds of prayers. And uh, women that have had the experiences with God and understand some of these things, make yourselves available to younger women who are on the front lines with children fighting the battles. Number two, under four, fourth section, God can and will guide His people if they will follow Him. God can and will guide His people if they will follow Him. Here it is right here. Number four and two. And let's take a look at a couple of verses while we're here. The meek will God guide in judgment. The humble he's talking about. The meek will God guide in judgment, and the meek will He teach His way. Psalm 25, 9. Psalm 48, 14. This is our God, and He is our God forever and ever, and He will be our guide even unto death. But if we want to get in on the guiding, what do we have to do? Follow. If we respond to the grace that He gives, He gives more grace. And who does He resist giving grace to? The proud. But God gives grace to the humble. John sixteen thirteen, New Testament. And we have to understand we can't do any of this without the strength of Christ in our lives. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own initiative. For whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. Okay, moving quickly. Numbers 11. Skipping over to the book of Numbers 11. Prophesying in the camp, Moses gathered 70 of the elders of the people, and he stationed them around the tabernacle. This is verse 24. And the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, and he took of the Spirit that was upon Moses and placed him personal Spirit, Holy Spirit, placed Him upon the 70 elders. And it came about when the Spirit rested upon the 70 elders, they prophesied, but they didn't do it again. Now there were two men back in the camp who were registered, but for some reason they didn't make it to the tabernacle to get the authorization of Moses. They started prophesying too. And Joshua said, whoa, now wait a minute. You guys are not authorized because you weren't over here at the tent of meeting when the Holy Spirit came down. And he is uh, saying this in verse 28. Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, and said, my, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. They're, they're doing the wrong thing. They're out of step here with the Spirit. What's going on? But look at Moses' answer. By the way, do you know the characteristic for which Moses is remembered? Meekness. Meekness. Despite his anger on several occasions, he's known for meekness. Maybe this is the reason. Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put His Spirit upon them. Now here is uh, Joshua and he is just a little bit too zealous here to get hold of these guys because they are not authorized and Moses is saying, Hey, let these guys prophesy. I wish everybody would prophesy. So in your uh, notes there, in spiritual leadership, there is to be no 
self-aggrandizement. There is to be no self-aggrandizement. Here it is. What number is that? That is number five, number one. Five. What is self-aggrandizement? No one can prophesy unless I give the word. Don't you be prophesying out there. Don't you be teaching a Bible study or whatever. I trust that everybody is out teaching a Bible study. Uh, then number two, a leader must always be on guard against assuming a God complex. What is a God complex? I am and there is none other like me. Is this not great Babylon that I have built by my power of my outstretched hand? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And we see others who get that um, complex that uh, I'm the king, King Uzziah. If I want to go in the temple to burn incense, I can do that because I'm the king. The priest said, nope, you can't do that. And sure enough, the Lord was uh, very much upset with that. Struck him with leprosy. So, uh, number five and two, assuming a God complex. Here it is. Now, that doesn't always come in the form of, I think I'm God, so I'm telling everybody what to do. You can tell everybody what to do without thinking you're God and kind of be moving over in that direction a little bit. Got to be humble. Got to be meek. Number three, a person can never bind God with man-made rules. A person can never bind God with man-made rules. New Testament. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And Jesus said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. A person can never bind God with man-made rules. Down here at the bottom. And we have to be um, very careful with that one because there are rules that God has bound us to. But we have to be sure we get the right ones in place there. Spying out the land. Oh, this is a good one. We've got about enough time to uh, wrap it up here with this one. Numbers 13, as we're cruising toward the end. Numbers 13, 1. Send out for yourselves young men that you may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of your father's tribes, everyone a leader among them. Now, here's God telling them to spy out the land. But, let's go ahead and fill in our blanks here. Oh, by the way, look in verse 16 in this chapter. These are the names of the men whom Moses sent out to spy out the land. But Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Hoshea means he saves. Jehoshua means Jehovah saves. Joshua is just a shortened form of that, and the Greek form is Jesus. Jehovah saves. That's Joshua's name here. Now, here's the amazing thing. Look at uh, your fill-in-the-blank, number 6-1. If a person persists in desiring his own way. Here's 6-1. If a person persists in desiring his own way, God may just give it to him according to His permissive will. His permissive will. Now some people get really confused here, but I don't think it's too confusing. Let's see if we can explain it. They really didn't need to send anybody to spy out the land. Do you know why? 
God had already spied out the land. Look in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 19. Then we set out from Horeb and went through all the great and terrible wilderness on the way to the hill country of the Amorites as God commanded us. And I said to you, God said to Moses, you've come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is about to give us. Excuse me, this is Moses talking to the people. See, the Lord your God has placed the land before you. Go up, take possession of it. The God of your fathers has spoken to you. Do not fear and be dismayed. Then all of you approached me and said, Ah, let us send men before us that we may search out the land. So the plan was, God has said we're going to take the land. He's given it to us. Let's go. The people said, no, 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 no. We've got to send out some men to see what we're up against. Now, here's an amazing verse here. Ezekiel 26. In that day, I lifted up my hand against them, says the Lord, to bring them forth of the land of Egypt, from the land of Egypt into a land that I had espied for them. God had already spied out the land for them, flowing with milk and honey which is the glory of all lands. The Hebrew word is T-U-W-R, tour. And it's used in Numbers 13 about the spies going out. It's used in this Ezekiel passage. Here's Deuteronomy 1.32. For all that, yet you did not believe the Lord your God, who went in the way before you to search out a place for you. Same word right there. It means to search out, to spy, to reconnoiter. God had already spied out the land. The people said, hey, no, we've got to send out spies. God said, okay, send out spies. Now, turn over a couple of pages to Numbers 22 because here's a real good explanation of this. The representatives from Balak of Moab came to Balaam. We want you to come and curse this people, Israel. And uh, God said, verse 12, to Balaam, do not go with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. So Balaam said, Forget it, I can't do it. But they send back more distinguished representatives with greater treasure up in the ante a little bit. And Balaam said, ooh, man, I sure would like to have that money in his heart. And he said, well, let me ask the Lord again. Stay here overnight and I will ask Him again. Second response, verse 20. God came to Balaam at night and said to him, if the men have come to call with you, rise up and go with them. But only the word of that I give you shall you speak. So the next morning, he saddled his donkey, he arose, he went with the leaders of Moab, but God was angry because he was going. People say, what's going on here? God told him to go. Yeah, God could see what was in his heart. So in God's permissive will, he lets him go. And then he sends an angel, you remember, to get in the way of the donkey, and you remember that story. Well, the people didn't want to go in and take control of the land and fight the giants and capture the fortified cities. They didn't believe that God would help them do it. So God says, okay, send out some spies. But what was the result of that? They brought back all this stuff. They said it's a land flowing with milk and honey. But we can't go in because they have giants there and we look like grasshoppers. Numbers 14.5, Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in sight of all the congregation Joshua the son of Nun, Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke and they said, The land we passed through to spy is a good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, He'll bring us in the land and give it to us. Only don't rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they shall be our prey. 
But the congregation said to them, We will stone you with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent. Here we go. Uh, Rebellion. Oh, excuse me. Number two, under six, even when the majority is unanimously against you, as they were Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Caleb, you must be willing to stand alone with God, even when the majority is unanimously against you. Stand alone with God. Here we go right here. Six, two. And then... Number three, rebellion against God is a dreadful and very unhealthy choice. Rebellion against God. Now let me just tell you what happens in Numbers 14. The very next day all the people get up and they say, Whew, we made a bad mistake, Moses. I tell you what, we will go up to the land. Moses said, nope, it's too late. Did you know that there is a time in your life when it's too late to obey? Do not be in rebellion against God, young people. Because there's a time when it's too late to obey. And for the Israelites, 24 hours cost them 40 years plus their lives because they all died out in the wilderness. 24 hours the next morning. And they went up as far as Hormah and the Canaanites scrapped them. And that was the end of that. 40 years in the wilderness while all that generation dies off. Now we come down to the last section. Oh, questions before we break up here. What kind of preparation is God taking you through right now to prepare you for ministry in His kingdom? Is it rough? Remember, God uses everything. How are you responding to the training? How can you better cooperate with Him to become clay in the potter's hand? Now go over to Numbers 26. And we're wrapping it up here. Number 2665, the Lord said to them, Thou shalt surely die in the wilderness. Not a man was left of them except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Now quickly we see Joshua's ordination in chapter 27, verse 18. Listen to this. The Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, lay your hand on him, And have him stand before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation and commission him in their sight. And you shall put some of your authority on him in order that all the congregation of the sons of Israel may obey him. Moreover, he shall stand before Eleazar the priest who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his command they shall go out and at his command they shall come in, both he and the sons of Israel with him and all the congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. And he took Joshua and set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation. And they laid their hands upon him and commissioned him just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Now, Moses is checking out and Joshua is ordained as the leader to take control. Now, his job was to be a spiritual leader in the land. Remember, God's working through the nation. What would be the job that God is training you for? It could be spiritual leadership. It could be in the home. It could be in the community. It could be in the church. Let me close by reading from J. Oswald Sanders' little book, Spiritual Leadership. Really a good little book. And he's quoting Samuel Brindle, who was one of the early leaders of the Salvation Army. He outlined the road to spiritual authority and leadership. Here's what he says. 
It's not by promotion, but by many prayers and tears. It's attained by confessions of sin and much heart-searching and humbling before God, by self-surrender, a courageous sacrifice of every idol, a bold, deathless, uncompromising, and uncomplaining embracing of the cross, and by an eternal, unfaltering looking unto Jesus crucified. It is not gained by seeking great things for ourselves, but rather, like Paul, by counting those things that are gained to us as loss for Christ. That is great price, but it must be unflinchingly paid by Him who would be not merely a nominal, but a real spiritual leader of men. A leader whose power is recognized and felt in heaven, on earth, and in hell. This is the type of man from, for whom God is searching and for whom He will show Himself strong. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we don't know what the future holds for us, but we do know that You have a plan for us, and Your plan works all things together for good. And You have all power to make it work. So we pray that we might respond well to the training in which we are uh, taking right now, which You're giving to us. And we pray that we might look to You and ever search for opportunities to minister and that we might see a vision of what You would have for us in the training that we are undertaking. Thank You for this church. Thank You for this time to study together. We ask that You would guide us now as we go to worship. We pray in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.